Section 1 of The Golden Bell, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 8. Departmental Kings of Nature. The preceding investigation has proved that the same union of sacred functions with the royal title which meets us in the king of the wood at Nemi, the sacrificial king of Rome, and the magistrate called the king at Athens, occurs frequently outside limits of classical antiquity and is a common feature of societies at all stages from barbarism to civilization. Further appears that the royal priest is often a king, not only in name, but in fact, swaying the scepter as well as the crozier. All this confirms the traditional view of the origin of the Titidia and priestly kings in the republics of ancient Greece and Italy, at least by showing that the combination of spiritual and temporal power of which Greco-Italian tradition preserved the memory has actually existed in many places. We have obviated any suspicion of improbability that might have attached to the tradition. Therefore we may now fairly ask, may not the king of the wood have had an origin like that which our probable tradition assigns to the sacrificial king of Rome and the titular king of Athens? In other words, may not his predecessors and novice have been a line of kings whom a replican revolution stripped of their political power, leaving them only their religious functions and the shadow of a crown? There are at least two reasons for answering this question in the negative. One reason is drawn from the abode of the priest of Nemi, the other from his title, the king of the wood. If his predecessors had been kings in the ordinary sense, he would surely have been found residing, by the fallen kings of Rome and Athens, in a city of which the sceptre had passed from him. This city must have been Arisia, for there is none nearer. But Arisia was three miles off from his forest sanctuary by the lake shore. If he reigned, it was not in the city, but in the greenwood. Again, his title, King of the Wood, hardly allows us to suppose that he had ever been a king in the common sense of the world. More likely, he was a king of nature, and of a special side of nature, namely the woods from which he took his title. If we could find instances of what we may call departmental kings of nature. This is of persons supposed to rule over particular elements or aspects of nature. They would probably present a closer analogy to the king of the wood and the divine kings we have been hitherto considering, whose control of nature is general rather than special. Instances of such departmental kings are not wanting. Kings of Rain in Africa On a hill at Boma, near the mouth of the Congo, dwells Namvuluvu king of the rain and storm. Of some of the tribes of the upper Nile, we are told that they have no kings in the common sense. The only persons whom they acknowledge as such are the kings of the rain, Matakodu, who are credited with the power of giving rain at the proper time, that is, in the rainy season. Before the rains begin to fall at the end of March, the country is a parched and arid desert, and the cattle, which form the people's chief wealth, perish for lack of grass. So when the end of March draws on, each householder betakes himself to the king of the rain and offers him a cow that he may make the blessed waters of heaven to drip on the brown and withered pastures. If no shower falls, the people assemble and demand that the king shall give them rain. And if the sky still continues cloudless, they rip up his belly, in which he is believed to keep the storms. Among the Bari tribe, one of these rain kings made rain by sprinkling water on the ground out of a handbell. Priesthood of the Alfei. 
Among tribes on the outskirts of Abyssinia, a similar office exists, as being thus described by an observer. The priesthood of the Alfei, as he is called by the Baria of Konoma, is a remarkable one. He is believed to be able to make rain. This office formerly existed among the Algeds and appears to be still common to the Nuba Negroes. The Alfei of the Baria, who is also consulted by the northern Kunama, lives near Tembadir, on a mountain alone with his family. The people bring him tribute in the form of clothes and fruits, and cultivate for him a large field of his own. He is a kind of king, and his office passes by inheritance to his brother or sister's son. He is supposed to conjure down rain and to drive away the locusts, but if he disappoints the people's expectation and a great drought arises in the land, the Alfei is stoned to death and his nearest relations are obliged to cast the first stone at him. When we passed through the country, the office of Alfei was still held by an old man, but I heard that rain-making had proved too dangerous for him, and that he had renounced his office. Kings of Fire and Water in Cambodia In the backwoods of Cambodia lived two mysterious sovereigns known as the King of the Fire and the King of the Water. Their fame is spread all over the south of the great Indo-Chinese peninsula. But only a faint echo of it has reached the West. Down to a few years ago, no European, so far as is known, had ever seen either of them, and their very existence might have passed for a fable, were it not, till lately communications were regularly maintained between them and the King of Cambodia, who year by year exchanged presents with them. The Cambodian gifts were passed from tribe to tribe till they reached their destination, for no Cambodian would essay the long and perilous journey. The tribe amongst whom the kings of fire and water reside is the Chereis, or Cherei, a race with European features but a sallow complexion, inhabiting the forest-clad mountains on and high tablelands which separate Cambodia from Amman. Their royal functions are of a purely mystical or spiritual order. They have no political authority. They are simple peasants, living by the sweat of their brow and the offerings of the faithful. According to one account, they live in absolute solitude never meeting each other and never seeing a human face. They inhabit successively seven towers perched upon seven mountains, and every year they pass from one tower to another. People come furtively and cast within their reach what is needful for their subsistence. The kingship lasts seven years. The time necessary to inhabit all the towers successfully, but many die before their time is out. The officers are hereditary in one, or, according to others, two royal families who enjoy high consideration, have revenues assigned to them, and are exempt from the necessity of tilling the ground. But naturally the dignity is not coverted, and when a vacancy occurs, all eligible men, they must be strong and have children, flee and hide themselves. Another account admitting the reluctance of the hereditary candidates to accept the crown does not countenance the report of their hermit-like seclusion in the seven towers, for it represents the people as prostrating themselves before the mystic kings whenever they appear in public, having thought that terrible hurricane would burst over the country if this mark of homage were omitted. Probably, however, these are mere fables such as commonly shed a glamour of romance over the distant and unknown. A French officer who had an interview with the redoubtable Fire King in February 1891 heard him stretched on a bamboo couch, diligently smoking a long copper pipe, and surrounded by people who paid him no great difference. In spite of his mystic vocation, the sorcerer had no charm or talisman about him, and was in no way distinguishable from his foes except by his tall stature. Another writer reports that the two kings are much feared, because they are supposed to possess the evil eye, hence every one avoids them, and the potentates considerately cough to announce their approach, and to allow people to get out of the way. 
They enjoy extraordinary privileges and immunities, but their authority does not extend beyond the few villages of their neighbourhood. Like many other sacred kings of whom we shall read in the sequel, the kings of fire and water are not allowed to die a natural death, for that would lower their reputation. Accordingly, when one of them is seriously ill, the elders order consultation. If they think he cannot recover, they stab him to death. His body is burned and the ashes are piously collected and publicly honoured for five years. Part of them is given to the widow, as she keeps them in an urn, which she must carry on her back when she goes to weep on her husband's grave. Supernatural Powers of the Kings of Fire and Water We are told that the Fire King, the more important of the two, whose supernatural powers have never been questioned, offers eights at marriages, festivals, and sacrifices in honour of the animal spirit. On these occasions, a special place is set apart for him, and the path by which he approaches is spread with white cotton cloths. A reason for confining the royal dignity to the same family is that this family is in possession of certain famous talismans which would lose their virtue or disappear if they passed out of the family. These talismans are three. The fruit of a creeper called Kui, gathered ages ago at the time of the last deluge, but still fresh and green. A rattan, also very old, but bearing flowers that never fade, and lastly a sword containing a yan or spirit guards it constantly and works miracles with it. The spirit is said to be that of a slave whose blood chanced to fall upon the blade while it was being forged, and who died a voluntary death to expiate his involuntary offence. By means of the two former talismans, the water king can raise a flood that would drown the whole earth. If the fire king draws a magic sword a few inches from its sheath, the sun is hidden and men and beasts fall into a profound sleep. Were he to draw it quite out of the scabbard, the world would come to an end. To this wondrous band, sacrifices of buffaloes, pigs, fowls, and ducks are offered for rain. It is kept swathed in cotton and silk, and amongst the annual presents sent by the king of Cambodia were rich stuffs to wrap the sacred sword. Gifts sent by the kings of fire and water to the king of Cambodia. In return, the kings of fire and water sent him a huge wax candle and two calabashes, one full of rice and the other of sesame. The candle bore the impress of the fire king's middle finger and was probably thought to contain the seed of fire, which the Cambodian monarch thus received once a year fresh from the fire king himself. This holy candle was kept for sacred uses. On reaching the capital of Cambodia, it was entrusted to the Brahmins, who laid it up beside the regalia and with the wax-made tapers, which were burned on the altars on solemn days. As the candle was a special gift to the fire king, we may conjecture that the rice and sesame were the special gifts of the water king. The latter was doubtless king of rain as well as of water, and the fruits of the earth were boons conferred by him on men. In times of calamity as during plague, floods, and war, a little of this sacred rice and sesame was scattered on the ground to appease the wrath of the maleficent spirits. Contrary to the common usage of the country, which is to bury the dead. The bodies of both these mystic monarchs are burnt, but their nails and some of their teeth and bones are religiously preserved as amulets. It is while the corpses beings consumed on the pyre that their kinsmen of the deceased magician flee to the forest and hide themselves for fear of being elevated to the invidious dignity which he has just vacated. The people go in search for them, and the first whose lurking place they discover is made king of fire or water. These then are examples of what I have called departmental kings of nature, but it is a far cry to Italy from the forests of Cambodia and the sources of the Nile. And though kings of rain, water and fire have been found, we have still to discover a king of the wood, 
to match the Arician priest who bore that title. Perhaps we shall find him nearer home. End of chapter 8